Hey, Malika. Hey, Chris. How are you? I am ready for the season finale of The Sausage of Science. What about you? I know. I can't believe, I can't believe we have come to this point. I can't believe the semester is over. It feels like it just flew by. Flew by and it's still like beating us up, is it not? Oh, yes, of course. Absolutely. I feel like I'm wholly unprepared for all of the work that needs to happen for the summer, but well, so it goes. I know. I never I never actually do feel prepared. And I wonder, like, I always think, like, someday I'm going to feel like I have everything together and I'm 52. So I'm like, I don't think that's ever, <laughs> ever going to happen. Uh, I will say that is the beauty of field work because it happens regardless if you are ready or not. You've got to get on that plane and you've got to collect data. So. Yeah, well, that requires booking the ticket and booking yes. the place to stay. I have booked the ticket. I still have to book the place to stay. And I have to, oh, book, I have to book the ticket for my research assistants. I have to find the one who's in Istanbul to find out how I'm going to get him to Samoa. Super fun. And you're I love it. And you're coordinating all kinds of chaos too, right? What oh, yeah. Talking, so, what are you telling me about? So uh, I have a really fantastic research team that works in the Republic of Congo, and they are about to go into the field. And I have to deal with the dual burden of feeling tons of FOMO that I am not going into the field this summer, but also the great delights of explaining equipment uh, over Zoom with a time crunch and equipment that is pretty hefty and maybe a little bit old. We are realizing that the technology for Bluetooth, for example, has changed really dramatically in the past five years. And so trying to remember what was in vogue in 2017 has been very fun. <laughs> Man, all the equipment stuff in the field, you never like that's like a whole like academic series, you know? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Are plugging things into the wrong voltage and having them fry in the middle of yes. and like having to run around and like, Oh my God, how are we going to measure BMI now? Oh, a scale. And, I guess uh, you can use the regular scale. <laughs> I, you know, I would love, I would love to do an entire episode just on what generators people use because solar power generators, gas power generators, how much power can it produce? Do you really need a laptop in the field? What kind of laptop so you're not going to short out your entire camp? All of those things are very important. Wow. That's a lot to talk about. Holy crap. <laughs> so many, so much, so many ingredients in the sausage. Oh, 100%. 100%. No, no, we've never gotten to. Future episodes. So what are they doing in the Congo? This is a research team that is led by uh, Julie Gettler, who is my oh. uh, former PhD advisor. Um, and he works with uh, Adam Boyette, who's at Max, Max Planck, as well as Shana Lulevi, who's at Durham University um, in the UK. And they have been doing a whole series of studies uh, looking at family systems, children, adolescents, looking at a combination of biomarkers, cultural experiences. Uh, we have a couple of collaborations, one including with uh, David Sampson out of University yeah. of Toronto. We have a paper that's under review right now looking at dreams. In, among the Bayaka and comparing that to folks living in Canada, which is really interesting. It's a, it's a really rich study. Uh, it, it has been very interesting because, you know, you see some of the, the, the field sites that have been in effect for long periods of time. They have huge teams, things like, you know, the Chimane Life History Project or the Schwar, and they're fantastic teams of human biologists. And this, this 
Fieldside is hopefully going to be one of those as well. But I got to witness it at its at its birth, at its inception. And just seeing how it's grown in the past couple of years is really amazing, but also really makes you realize how much you need to have good team science and having collaborators you can rely on. And that's It's such a fantastic team. And I think it's successful because everyone is just so competent because hmm. you have to be. Because if you're not, then all your equipment gets destroyed by the Congo humidity or pirates or tariffs or whatever. <laughs> so important wow. things. Yeah. Well, I can't wait. Uh, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of stuff coming out of that yes. site in, in the coming years that we can talk about on the Society of Science. Absolutely. And One I hopes. Ha- I have a friend in criminal justice who's an expert on pirates, so maybe we could do a pirate episode. Oh, my before. gosh. I'm sure. I'm sure if we ask anthropologists and human biologists in particular about uh, their experience with pirates, I'm sure that there are probably more people than we think that have experience working with and around pirates <laughs> I, I am becoming because of this association i've become increasingly sensitive to to episodes of piracy and looking for them now everywhere so that it's a digression that we we won't make any further right now but stay tuned people <laughs> for a future episode on i remember actually we talked to amber wudich about this years and years ago about water pirates and how you know, <laughs> so, so it's not like it's unprecedented but that's not what we're here to talk about today today is the season finale so for those listening we will have episodes over the summer maybe not as regular they will be rerun episodes um there'll be episodes of people who have books out and we'll be trying to get them to read bonus sections of their book right so if you don't have any episodes over the summer it's because we couldn't get people to do that but if you do that's what you'll be getting in the meantime our last episode is with Anwesha Pan who is a doctoral student I had the pleasure of seeing present at the AAA conference uh, back in um, November and um, invited to the podcast way back then and haven't had the opportunity to get on until now. And her ongoing research is on famine and fecundability in Bangladesh. That's the that's the presentation that I had the opportunity to see. But she's also done previous work on polycystic over ovarian syndrome um, in Kolkata, India, and looking at that as a risk factor for a variety of other issues. Are we ready? I think we are. Anwesha, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. We're really Thank happy you. to have you here. Hey, nice to see you, Malika, right? Yes, yes. That's me. I don't think we have met in person, so... It, yeah, we haven't met yet. Yeah, but it's great to see you on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, nice to see you. And hopefully we will meet very soon in a yes. conference or, yeah. Let's manifest that future. I'm here <laughs> for it. <laughs> so so Chris was saying that he had the chance to meet you at the AAAs. And we finally are able to get you on the podcast. And we're so happy to have you here. And I think that a good place we should start is how we like to start all of our interviews you know, what we're interested here on this podcast is understanding how the science is made, the sausage of the science, if you will. But a huge part of that is the scientist. So what is your story? What is your trajectory? How did you get to where you are and studying the questions that you do? I was born in a small town in India. I'm from West Bengal, the state in India. And my hometown's name is Bordhaman. 
and so my family uh, in my family they always like encourage women like everyone both like the boys and the girls to get like higher study and be like self reliant in their life so that's why like my childhood environment was like very <laughs> encouraging very motivating to like you know to do research to understand science and my aunt she she is like an uh, she was an expert in physics and she was actually in her university the first woman in, who studied physics and the only woman <laughs> in her class so yeah so that's why like i was like pretty well like mentored by my family members and then i decided to like study biotechnology after my high school and i was uh, i was enjoying the courses most of the courses but then i realized that when i was like doing all the lab work i was like getting all the like i was doing pcr and i was getting the blood samples and there was like only like leveled with the subject id and i had like no idea about like whose samples they were from and i asked those like uh, professors like i want to like know more about those like where like from where those samples are coming from in those uh, department there was not many opportunities to learn about all those things and i realized that i don't want to like confine myself into like that setting and i want to like know more and I'm, i can do more so i contacted one of the anthropologists in india who was working in indian statistical institute kolkata dr t s basulu so he was actually doing some genetics work in the northeastern population the tribal population in india and so he used to do all the field work and get the samples and do the lab work so i felt like this is the kind of work i want to do and i contacted him and i said you know but i am not from anthropology but i am interested to study anthropology so can you help me i started like doing project with him he retired after that i found darrell's web page and i felt it will be really udub will be really suitable place for my future so i mean rereading your your poster like it all came back to me like what was so impressive about that so if you don't mind i want to start with with that um you you gave a presentation that looked at the impacts of famine on <laughs> fecundity we in anthropology especially in human biology we talk a lot about the dutch hunger winter as mm-hmm. a model for famine and how it can influence multi-generational health or disease but we don't we there are other models out there right and and you mm-hmm. you pr- brought us one i had never heard about before so i wonder if you could just tell us about the uh, famine in in bangladesh in 1974 and why it was so traumatic firstly thank you for appreciating my research yeah so there is actually uh, some studies like people like were focused on bangladesh famine and there were like some research went on but i felt like there was like a gap because there were like so many like studies on the chinese famine the dutch famine but not much focused on like great bengal famine which happened actually in 1943 that's another famine in bengal and then like this famine that 1974 to 75 bangladesh famine what happened in 1947 india became independent so the greater india the whole geographic location became like independent from the british raj country divided you know those religions so the muslim uh, they went to like the east pakistan and west pakistan and bangladesh became east pakistan in 1947 
then like in 1971 there was like a civil war mukti juddho in bangladesh and they become independent from pakistan the new country formed so after like the new like it became a new country there were like some infrastructure problems were like going on many political issues after that there were like some natural disaster happened like the flood happened cyclone happened but there is an argument by omoto shen and for that he actually won the nobel prize he argued that it was actually not because the food was like not available it was because of the distribution problem the uh, some entitlement approach he mentioned the people who were in the high socio economic status or like more politically more powerful they hoarded all the food which we all like experience we saw during the pandemic the people who were like poor or like the had like no like or like social power in the society they got no food i mean a new country in that kind of like political situation if on top of that the natural disaster happened that's why like this famine was like so like disastrous there was like the infant mortality rate become like really higher and the crude mortality rate become pretty higher i feel like i feel like this research I'm so excited that we're talking about it and it hits close to my heart. So for listeners who don't know, I am an Indian American first generation. My parents are actually from Kerala in India. And so we, you know, while we were very far away from the, you know, the great famine of West Bengal because my grandfather was in the Indian Navy, I grew up hearing about these stories and hearing about partition and hearing about the trauma that we've endured. It's really interesting being a human biologist now and looking at my own health and the health of my parents and relatives who live in the states and it seems like there has been this resurgence of understanding the intergenerational effects of the trauma of colonialism that happened for hundreds of years in India and then the effects of partition on our bodies our bodies our behavior even though like I was born and brought up here and I'm still experiencing those things and so I'm curious as they this is like totally my own personal <laughs> curiosity here but i feel like i only really learned about this the the biological effects and the health effects of of this deep colonial extraction that the british did winston churchill people put winston churchill <laughs> on a pedestal but the bengal famine was his fault look it up don't at me and so Do you feel like when you are doing this research do you feel like you're doing a lot of education to tell people that this these atrocities happened or is it more like the the biology of it is new I tell both side of the story because like this whole research it is very complex because it is actually like showing those historical things that happened when like the people who had like not much power who were like helpless they couldn't like get the things the that was needed for their survival and how that impacted the next generations i mean it is like something like very complex and i hope that we can like present uh, and analyze all those things and 
So my advisor and I are currently, and also like our collaborators in Bangladesh, we are currently now developing a proposal on Bangladesh famine and its impact on the like the menopause and the women who were like exposed to famine. I got to acknowledge that one of the reasons that this fascinated me so much is because I'm completely ignorant to it. So I, on one hand, I, I appreciate being educated. On the other hand, I apologize for asking you to to do the labor of both informing us about the biological stuff that you've been doing, but also giving us a historical primer. I've been educating myself about world history my whole life. It's take It, it, it takes a long, long time to catch up when you're only given this sort of small window of, of an education. This research that you did, the sample size is huge, right? You have 6,500 marriages, but you were working with the International Center for Diarrheal Disease mm -hmm. Research. So I was wondering if you could tell us about this organization, how you got involved and sort of like what, like give us a sense of how the study came about. This organization, ICDDRV is fabulous. It's in a place of, in Bangladesh named Motlop. It was first established to develop the cholera vaccine and all the public health experts, doctors, epidemiologists, they were like working on the population of Motlop. So in Motlop, they actually have like those control village and experiment village. So it's, so they recruit like physician, public health people, demographers, statisticians and also the people from the community who are like involved in all those field work. So my advisor, Daryl Hallman, he did his uh, PhD field work in Motlop and he had his collaboration with those ICDDRB people as a grad student. And then like I decided like to do like work with ICDDRB uh, with like their collaboration. I took some help from Monica Keith and Katie Starkweather and because of their help and blessing, I had like connection with Dr. Anisu Rahman in ICDDRB. So he's a physician and he also does some research and he's very much like, uh, like interested on like those intergenerational health. And he was like very interested to like work with us and the setting will be something like that that I will have the collaboration with a scientist in ICDDRB. He will connect me with the physicians or like the local people in Motlop. And then we will like train the community health workers for this particular project. Then they will like go to the field and maybe I will like join them. And they will like give the questionnaires. They will like talk to the, like the participants collect the samples and then we will like go uh, come back to the Motlop field office and keep everything there. So they have fabulous setup. It's all coming back. I know we talked to Katie Starkweather. I think Katie Plasek also worked there through some of that as well. So yeah, I remember envying that that setup as, as something super amazing. We were just talking uh, earlier on our, in our intro about the the work and the necessary skills it takes to build that kind of research infrastructure so you can do work and have it be community informed as well. I think it's, we come from a, a discipline that has a long history of imposing our own research structures on communities. And I'm really glad that that seems to be changing and that, you know, we're making sure we have community informed research as well. 
I have a maybe like a more specific question about um, that work that you had. So how do you explain a 50% higher fecundity during the famine? Yeah, it was very interesting when we found found that because there was a previous paper on the Dutch famine and the fecundability and they found like the complete like opposite uh, like the trend because they found like the decline fecundability was like associated with the famine exposure I think, like it might be a possibility that the that during famine the men they were like not uh, migrated to like some place for their employment so they were like staying at home and they reproduce. We don't know. We don't have the data to test that. Might be a possibility that there was like some kind of like selection bias. Maybe this results is kind of like reflect the women who were like born in the higher socioeconomic status household. So our next step is, is to like link this data with the socioeconomic status data, which my advisor, he has it. So then we will be like able to like understand if there was like some, if those women from where like they are coming from was a like place where like they had like enough resources to make the decision to reproduce. It will be interesting to explore the socioeconomic status data and to understand why this kind of trend was happening. Yeah, because you said that the higher status folks were hoarding food, right? So maybe <laughs> maybe it was the people hoarding the food. Maybe a possibility, yes. <laughs> That's super interesting. Yeah. So I well, we can't wait to hear more about that. Uh, but you've you've also done, I mean, you've been you've done a lot of research. It's um it's really cool. So I pulled the paper that you did on polycystic ovarian syndrome where you were it, 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 you were looking at phase gap mm-hmm. and I, I had to look that up. But I'm going to let you tell us what is the phase gap and and what does it tell us about the health risk? And what you what you learn from that study? Yeah. So yeah, the polycystic ovary syndrome research is very close to my heart because it was the first research I performed, and I actually tried to build the whole setup in India in Kolkata with help of Dr. Vasulu and some physicians in that medical college, and that was like so far like my only like research where I actually talked with the participant, like the actual health thing. <laughs> so yeah, so the phase gap is that the time gap between this menstrual cycle. So polycystic ovary syndrome is a very complex disorder. And it's like an endocrine disorder. And it's associated with obesity, insulin resistance. And when it happened, so the woman, they have they typically have longer menstrual cycle. So the ovulation doesn't happen. And then like they also have the symptoms of androgen excess in the ovary. So that is like reflected as like their acne, hirsutism. Its health implication is the first is it is associated with infertility and it's a big concern. So whenever, I mean, I have heard so many women they are like very stressed when they have like PCOS that will I ever be like pregnant or what is going to happen with my fertility? Also, it is associated with diabetes type 2 and other cardiovascular disease because as it is like a very complex syndrome and there were like so many like hormonal imbalance happening because of those, uh, all those like signal uh, all those signaling pathways somehow like connected with each other 
something may happen like maybe like it may like affect the genes associated with the insulin resistance pathway it may affect the genes associated with obesity which may further like make impact on the cardiovascular health so that is why it is like a big concern these days and especially in india like the pcos cases are now increasing so the all the gynecologists they are like very very concerned about that yeah i was super fascinated about that research is is that work continuing no because like i was the only student who was like involved in that and dr vasulo he retired and then the physician who was like my collaborator in that medical uh, college yeah she was very sad because like uh, we all knew that uh, if i like come here it will be like stopped and i did <laughs> not like i felt very bad to like let it go i mean i still feel very bad i mean i have the data but i mm-hmm. still haven't like published it because i think like i don't have like i i'm still not ready to like look at the data and publish it i mean i well i feel like that is something that probably everyone who listens to this can probably identify with we are so fortunate to collect such rich data on people and it's just impossible to get all of it out at yeah. the times that i think that we imagine that we can i i have a problem with that i have like maybe 15 papers that are deep in the pipeline that i really need to work on <laughs> but i think it's really exciting because it means that you have so much amazing contributions to make and with that i want to talk about your your newer research that you're working mm-hmm. on um looking at uh neighborhood poverty and female reproductive age and that seems that's happening here in north america correct yeah yeah so uh you know when we read about it it said said that you're working on ovarian reserve and so can you talk a little bit about that and what your objectives are for that study mm-hmm. so yeah right now i am super involved in that project and i'm working with uh, dr maria blail and she is from uh, school of nursing and she collected all these data so it's a secondary data so ovarian reserve is like the whatever like left in our ovary uh so at birth it's like one around like 1 million ovarian follicles we have in our ovary but with like time with uh, the destruction of the follicular atresia the number decline around like the age 30 to 40 so if we like measure it will be like definitely like lesser than the women who are like in their 20s so there are like some uh, marker which can like tell us like how how much is left in your ovary either we can like count those ovarian follicle numbers or there we can also measure the hormones which is secreted from the follicle that is antimullerian hormone amh and in this study we are using amh and antral follicle count as our biomarker and our objective is to see if the uh, lifetime exposure of neighborhood poverty associated with ovarian a lower ovarian reserve or not because our hypothesis is that if a woman is like uh, exposed to the neighborhood poverty throughout her lifetime it might be like associated with lower ovarian uh, reserve so that is what we are testing here so she has like a really rich data set so she found that if the mothers are exposed to the neighborhood poverty mm-hmm. 
So someone, if like, if a woman exposed to neighborhood poverty in utero, mm -hmm. so that will be associated with lower ovarian reserve. In the woman or in the child? In those children. Wow. What what do you think the mechanism is? I, I've, you know, we, we've talked to like Lance Gravely and Connie Mulligan about, and, and I've talked to Dan Eisenberg up there about telomere fraying and stuff like that associated with poverty. But what do you think the mechanism would be that would affect follicles? It might be possible that when the mother, the pregnant woman, she is living in poverty or she's exposed to famine, that is like, somehow inducing stress in the body maybe that is recruiting lesser follicle when there's one million thing happening in the ovary so that is one possibility there is another possibility that those maybe like when those in utero the child the child is in, in utero and when that child is like exposed to the stress through because the mother is in under like that kind of like stress it may be possible that that baby she will like when she is born she will have faster atresia so she will like lose those ovary and follicle faster than the woman who whose mother was like not exposed to those kind of stress yeah, sort of like Martin and Daly's homicide work, where if your life, if if there's more risk in your environment, then everything sort of speeds up. I love it. It's like some classic life history, uh, yes. life history outcomes work. It sounds like you have so much amazing research, both that you have done, you are doing, and you're going to be doing in the future. So for, you know, where... How, where are you in your career? What's next for you? Right now, I think I I am kind of like trying to finish my PhD dissertation. And after that, I want to like, uh, I want to stay in research because I really love it. I enjoy it. It makes me very happy. And yeah, so I think like uh, after my PhD, I want to like do the work with ICDDRB and maybe in in future, I will be able to like finish that PCOS research in India, and I want to stay in academia. I'm I'm curious. Are you are you thinking about if you want to be based in the US or you want to be based back in Kolkata? No, I think I want to stay in the US. I I love it here. I love how excited you are about your research, and I want to tell listeners that if they could see. Anwesha, her hands as she's explaining, she's pulling her ideas out of the air. And as a as a gestural person, I really uh, I, I really enjoy watching you talk. So uh, the excitement is is infectious. It's important. It's one of the the you're you're amplifying your own research by coming on here and being so excited about it. So thank you for making it easy to interview you, and we wish you all the luck and can't wait for your your more publications so we can have you back on. Yes, thank you so much. Thank now, you. if listeners want to get a hold of you and learn more, do you have social media that they can find? Are you on Twitter or anything like that? I know you I am, are. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter and Facebook. What's your handle? Onesha Pan. Okay. So your name, you can find me at Chris underscore L-Y in the Human Bio Association at, hum, at HumBioAssos. And, and you can find me on Twitter at SkyMall. That's S-K-Y-Y underscore M-A-L. 
And uh, it has been a pleasure to be a guest host, and I'm very happy to uh, hand the baton back. I'm honored uh, that I was chosen to carry the torch while Kara was uh, on sabbatical. Yes. But it's been lovely, and I'm very happy to have ex- enjoyed this experience <laughs> with all of you. Thank you, Malika. It has been a pleasure for me as well. Thank you, Anwesha, for a Thank fantastic you. interview. And we have been the Sausage of Science. We'll see you again. Uh, we'll have reruns through the summer, and we'll be talking at you again in the fall. Bye.